0: For the next two months, we are uh, going to be going through the life of Christ. Uh, I'm not doing that. Is somebody else doing that? <laughs> I'm not touching anything. That was not me. So you're all dismissed. We're going to be going through the life of Christ and um, talking about our visible faith. And um, there is certainly no place better to look for visible faith in, in our, our public display of what we believe than Christ. We could approach this in a lot of ways. Um, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mountain, the, the things about Christ that we typically focus are his amazing teachings. Uh, when we look at the life of Christ and we just go through and, and, and we see time and time again people who wanted to disagree with him and they just, he just shut them up time after time after time. What an amazing teacher. In um, 1899, someone came up with an idea to put the words of Christ in red. Uh, interesting, except for I'm not doing that. Keep your hands away. <laughs> Getting ready to turn that thing off. All right. There's a guy by the name of Louis Klopp. who was a German immigrant, and he published that first Bible that you saw on the previous screen. And uh, it's helpful in some ways, I suppose. Uh, as you need these more and more, they become more and more annoying, those red letter Bibles. I can tell you that. Uh, but one of the things I, I dislike about it is that it keeps coming back on the screen. And uh, <laughs> someone is haunting this thing. All right, turn it off. Turn it off. We're done. You can just mute that. Thank you. It kind of. Suggests that there are certain words in the Bible that are more important. My mic is on. I got one thing under control up here, all right? Um, But a black letter edition, in this series that we're talking about, the black letter edition, is that. What would we do with the life of Christ if we turned the volume off? If we looked at Christ from the perspective of deaf people, deaf people were in his ministry and watched him. And we're not just going to talk about deaf people. We might come across those in this series. But we are going to talk about the the things that Jesus did to be influential, not just the things that he said to be influential. So we're not dealing with the criticisms of if we should have red-letter Bibles or not. That's not what this sermon. And so each week we're going to group these by different topics. Um, different things that Jesus did to really uh, make a difference, and to make his teaching effective, the things that go along with the words, in other words. Uh, so we're going to begin, we're going to talking this week about improving things. Jesus improved things, and, and we could look at just about any of his miracles, and or, or not even his miracles, just his teachings. And we could look at those things and we could say, well, he improved that situation. Jesus improved every situation that he ever walked into. We're going to take a look at a couple. Uh, Matthew chapter 4. <clears throat> Excuse me. Matthew chapter 4. Verse 18, he says, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, and they were fishermen, uh, for they were fishermen. And he said, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. <clears throat> just for clarity's sake, when we read this, you may get a weird impression. Does it sound weird to you? Someone walks by and we go, wow, Jesus must have been amazing. He just you. Okay, that sounds kind of weird. But well, that's because we kind of, we're just reading John's story here, or Matthew's story. We're not reading Mark and Luke and John and all those about this same event. When we read John's story, as John was in the event, he writes it a little bit different. Uh, and and we, we, from the other ones, right, we, we learn some interesting things. For example, John tells us that this was not the first time they met Jesus. They weren't, Jesus didn't just walk by and they said, oh, I guess we got to go, he said. And it was like some magical trance, they got up and walked. They were already his disciples in that sense. They, John and uh, and Andrew had been uh, disciples of, well, along with their brothers, disciples of John the Baptist. And, and, and John writes that, that they were standing there next to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said, Uh, jesus was coming by and he said behold the lamb of god just said that to those two and uh and at that point is when they started following him andrew of course he runs off and he tells uh his older brother peter and i assume that john runs off and tells his older brother james uh and they are fishermen they work together and uh and so uh at this point, they've been listening to him for I don't know how long, months, weeks, I don't know. But at this point, Jesus comes by and says, all right, now it's time to leave this work. And, and there's some other work to do. So this wasn't straight out of the blue, and they—they, they, there was some backstory to this event. They were already in, in Jesus' orbit, I guess you'd say. Now, <clears throat> when we read these verses we don't see any great teachings there's there's no profound statements of doctrine or or you know like we we see in some of the other speeches of jesus or or, you know the beatitudes or in, in some of the even the conversations that he has with other people where we we get these incredible ideas he just simply walks by says come follow me but there is something i want to to look at the first thing, first way that Jesus improves, and it's a, it's a way for us to improve the lives of those around us, is in his the nature of his appeal. The nature of his appeal, he makes things. If we look at if we look at the way uh, religious groups often today and not, you don't even have to isolate it by, by religious groups I think it's a, it's a people thing or it's a generational thing if you, look at the, if you contrast today if you contrast today a political speech today with one from 150 years ago you would notice the difference in the way that people appeal for support right? today, if you listen to anybody speak on you know, anything that they're trying to get it's all about what I'm going to give you Everything is an appeal based on what you get out of the deal. Jesus doesn't appeal to them on the basis of what they're going to get out of it. That's the first thing that I notice, uh, a difference between what Jesus does and what religious groups often do today. Uh, Churches often appeal to people on the basis of what you're going to get from it. The second thing I noticed, the difference uh, in these these appeals uh, of Jesus and religious groups is that religious groups appeal to people on the basis of attending. Come, in other words, their appeal is come and receive. Come with us for a few hours and receive something. And and Jesus' appeal is follow and become it's completely different Jesus has a superior ministry and a superior goal he offers to make people something not to give people something and that is such a a dramatic difference that if you look throughout his ministry lives are being improved in a substantive way not on the basis of what they get Not, not that Jesus never gave anything we know that. Certainly he gave things. And he approved improved lives in, in material ways. <clears throat> but the first thing he ever did was to offer to make people things, into things. And that's the nature of the of the church, what it should be. Not not the giving of stuff. Not the coming for entertainment, not the Not the coming for uh, this or that function. Even vital functions are still functions. But at the end, people need to become something better. I want to look at another one. Matthew chapter 15. There's a lot of lessons we could get out of this one. Matthew chapter 15. Verse 22, beginning, or let's back up. Verse 21, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew into the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that area came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering uh, with a demon. And Jesus didn't answer anything. So his disciples came to him and urged him and said, send her away because she keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And the woman came and knelt in front of him. She said, Lord, help me. And he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. Pretty harsh. Yes, Lord, she said. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered, women, you have great faith. And so your request is granted and her daughter was healed from that very hour. There's another, there's another one we look at, kind of like the last one, and we, like, there's some confusion over what's going on here. And i like, Jesus just called her a dog. That is not right. That's not my picture of Jesus running around calling people dogs. And again, there's no great dramatic teaching here. There's no, no great profound Doctrinal thought. The only thing that, that Jesus does say, we kind of like, I kind of disagree with that. That, that. that doesn't seem like the Jesus I, I know. He just called her a dog. Well, we know the character of Jesus and we know that Jesus didn't think she was a dog. So why does he say this? That's the question. I have to understand that a dog in their culture meant an unclean animal. And he's partially referring to The idea that that she is not a pure Hebrew. And he was, in his ministry, designed really for one, one main goal. But there's something deeper going on, I believe, in here. Verse 27. Her answer is interesting to me. I don't know exactly what it means. But she says, yes, Lord. He calls her a dog and she says, yes, Lord so something in what he said she accepted that's a problem she accepted that it was me like, Would you called me a dog <laughs> I got a problem with you now but something in her life maybe, maybe it's not that she thought of herself as a dog maybe she just accepted that he thought of her as a dog that, that she expected this of a Jew to think of her this way. and So, yes, but I really need this thing. So. Or maybe, years and years of being conditioned that they weren't pure Jews. So we are lesser. Somewhere in there is what this woman is thinking. I'm not sure exactly what. Jesus is improving her in, a, in a, a different way, and, and I, I don't suggest that we mimic Jesus by walking around calling people dogs. I don't believe that will make you effective. But what Jesus is doing is growing her faith. I think he's trying to get her past the things that hinder her. Sometimes you have to kind of be blunt with people. And sometimes you have to challenge people. He knows how to do that perfectly, of course, because he can read minds and he knows what's in the heart of people. And and he challenges her. And, And sometimes you have to draw people out by doing something unexpected or opposite of what you would think. If you want to get me to do something, you have to tell me it's impossible to do it. And then I'm like, okay, watch this. Uh, that's kind of the way I do. I challenge myself uh, by putting myself in these difficult situations. Right? And now I know I have to do it. It's just kind of the way some people work. And maybe that's the way she works. I don't know. Maybe he had to confront her by calling her a doctor, she go, wait a minute. <laughs> but even still, and whatever the case, whatever the thing is that, that inside of her that Jesus is working, he's growing her faith, he's challenging her. To get beyond. And in our ministries, in our public displays of our faith, one of the ways we need to improve people is by giving people challenges to overcome. Faith cannot always be easy. It's like, oh, it's the easiest. Being a Christian is the easiest thing you'll ever do. Like, I don't know what kind of Christianity you have. You did not get the gold model. (laughs) I can tell you that. The platinum package, whatever. It is not easy. It requires challenge to grow. And sometimes that comes in dramatic ways. When I teach people, one of the things I do is I ask a lot of questions. And I don't answer it for them until they don't have it, until they're stumped. One of the things I found is when I give people that opportunity, sometimes the answers are pretty profound. Sometimes they dig into something and go, wow. I've had people answer questions that I wasn't, I was amazed by the answer and I've used that since. other explanations of, wow, that was a good thought. That was a deep thought. People are capable of things. Trust them to be capable of, of great things. And that's not something he said. That's just something he did. He challenged her. The last one is John chapter 5. And I had some wonderful pictures up here, but... John chapter 5, verse 1 through 9, he says, A little while later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews. And there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. It's surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here a number of uh, disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And my version is missing verse 4, as many of yours might also be. But it's in, fortunately, they put it down here. They waited for the moving of the waters. For some time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters, and the first one at the pool, after each disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease he has. Verse 5 continues One who had been there was lame for 38 years, and Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for some time. He said, Do you want to get well? Sir, the lame man replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else gets down in ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, well, get up, take up your bed and walk. And the man was cured, and he picked up his mat and he walked. And the day on which this took place was the Sabbath, Uh uh-oh, and so on and so forth. And there's some interesting things in this story. Um. During my ministry, I have encountered a lot of doctrines and discussions of things. And I've, uh, my freshman year, we had uh, a class that introduced us. Your freshman year in Bible college, there, there's a lot of basic introductory classes. So one of them was world religions. We, we covered uh, world religions. We covered uh, major j- denominations. And then we covered cults. And That was our first, our first year, of of that particular particular class, and and one of the things we did was, as, as as far as we could in a small Iowa town, we visited some of these places. Some of them pretty within the mainstream in terms of denomination. Some of them a little out there, uh, and uh, you know, just, just a, a variety of churches. Well, well, uh, you know, see, then I, I as a, a college student, I was a Debater, I like to argue things. Uh, a frequent arguer in my free time, which Iowa affords a lot of, I would visit churches and get into arguments with people. Uh, I remember a discussion with a one-cup congregation that a friend of mine brought me to. We had a lively discussion. Um, I, I've talked about this other this other church that was right down the street from my uh, our dorm room that we went to, uh, and and they were. They they had this what's called oneness. They believed that Jesus is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So I was different. Uh, those are the two that I really, really remember from that year, but um there were others, I know. And uh and so I would argue, get into arguments. What great fun. What great entertainment. And uh one of the discussions throughout the years that I've had the most, we've been talking about this in 1 Corinthians classes, the miraculous gifts and tongues and various things like that. Bruce on Wednesday evening has been taking us through through various denominations and looking at the the influences of, of religions on on Christianity and, and various things. And I'm not saying there's no value in that. There's a lot of value in, in understanding. There was a value in in in, in that. But what I want to focus on is what Jesus does here and what Jesus doesn't do in his ministry. Because there's a there's a great argument about this passage and specifically verse four. Some people cannot accept that verse four is in your Bible because it seems to suggest that that this, this superstition was true that, that the, the waters here in, in in the pool of Siloam would be stirred up And that people would get in and heal. Did that really happen? Did they really get healed? And so some people conclude that that can't be real. And so they've removed it from the Bible. Some people say, well, why couldn't it be real? How do you know what an angel did? Some people conclude, well, this was an explanation of something. And and, and someone tried to, and that explanation later became a part of, I don't know. I I tend to try to not remove verses from the Bible that I don't know shouldn't be removed, so I'll leave it there in mind. I I think likely what's happening is that this is a verse in the Bible that should be in the Bible, and, and John is not relaying what actually happened, but is relaying this man's perception of what happened. He wants to get into the pool because he thinks that every time this water moves, someone has a chance to get healed. Now, what this was, and we have, they've discovered the pool a few years ago, actually, where this was, accidentally, when a pipe broke, and they did some excavation, and they found it, and they excavated it, and it's cool, and it'll fill up with water now, um, but at the time, uh, it, was, it was a diversion from, from the, uh, uh, what's called the Gihon Spring, and, and Hezekiah diverted this water in, so that, in case of a siege, they would have water inside the city, inside the city walls. And, uh and so people would go there and then head up to the temple after purifying well it's it's diverted and so there's a little channel that would go underneath and and so every once in a while and then it, it the the water system is is incredible what Hezekiah did and there's this these canals underneath the ground and everything and, and so what would happen was it would siphon right and and, and the siphon action would, when the water got so high it would fill this, this chamber and then that would overflow and it would siphon into this pool and it would raise up again. And the siphoning action would create a disturbance on the water. That's all it was, quite natural. So what I know from my mind is this was not a miracle, this was siphoning action. It wasn't an angel, unless the angel is doing normal physics experiments. I don't know. But if you don't know that, you don't see the channel. All of a sudden, it's no wind, no—it just starts doing that. That might look miraculous to me. And so they developed a, a superstition about what's going on, and maybe we can be healed by that because it looks miraculous. But I want to get to what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't debate, he detours. Jesus has the presence of mind. I suppose at some point he explained to the man that was siphon action. It was was a pool. He explained all the physics to him. I don't know. But Jesus doesn't get into a debate with the guy about whether he needs to or not. What Jesus does is he gives him the real thing. He's like, you're not going to need that. You're not going to have to wait for the waters to bubble and, oh man, I missed it again. Everyone who's here is trying to get well themselves, so they're not going to help me in. So Jesus performs a miracle. A lot of people watching that. And that's a different story too. But they see Jesus give the real thing. No need for debate. You give the real thing. It, it takes a lot of the need to debate away. I don't need to. I don't need to debate. Well, tongues are for today and the miracles are blah blah, 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 not right? don't, I don't. Prove it to me. i believe it. If you show me it's real, that ends all the debate, really. (laughs) If you show me that's the real thing, that ends all the debate. But other than that, the gospel is the real thing. I have the real thing that cures the real thing. I mean, the, the, the real needs. This is it. And so Jesus' silence, once again, is quite profound. No great teaching. No, no great profound doctrinal statement. And yet it's influential. In each of these situations, we see Jesus impacting people. Not with a great doctrine he taught. I don't want to diminish the red letters. The red letters are quite important. The, the things that Jesus said were absolutely vital. But the things that Jesus did influenced people and made what he said effective it made them in some cases ready to listen and Jesus didn't argue but he didn't confirm the man's superstition either I can't argue people's experience that's one thing I've learned in my in my time as a a preacher and other things people haven't experienced they've they've felt this and this happened to me and boy to argue that oh you didn't experience that good luck with that good luck now I know that they didn't experience that because it disagrees with stuff that God said so I know that you didn't I had a guy tell me that Jesus appeared in his kitchen and punched him and sent him across the kitchen I know that didn't happen. You're not going to convince him of that. You've got to give the real thing. When people get a taste for the real thing, in time they may look back and say, you know, I might have been in a heightened emotional state, and I might have perceived things incorrectly. It might be a time where you can explain things. Give the real thing. And in time, people will see the superiority of what we have, the faith that we have, that improves lives. All that stuff that people get into, it doesn't really improve things that much. What people want more than anything. Insight. When we come down to it, people want to be something. Most of the things that, that people seek and, I, I mean, just gravitate towards have to do with feeling or being like something. Value, the, the purpose of life, and all those questions. That's really what people want. And, and if in my public faith, I can display that they can become something greater, you go back to, to those great political speeches The ones that challenged a citizenship to become something and be something. Those are the ones we remember. You don't remember the the laundry list of things that this guy is going to offer you. You don't remember those. They're not memorable because they don't offer anything of substance. Jesus did not direct his attention At, at improving people's lives at the corners, at giving little stuff here and there. Here's this little benefit. But he, he improved people and situations dramatically by allowing them to be better versions of themselves. Not only that only that, again, he offered them the platinum package. Not the little easy stuff to do. But that, that amazing package that says you can be substantially greater. <clears throat> Have you ever wanted to be greater? I, I, I'm going to make you something. You, you, I'm not going to make you good fishermen. I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to give you something that leaves a legacy. Thousands of years of Legacy. You do not know how I will be affected and how other people will be affected by, by whatever God wants to work through me but, but if I allow Him to. And that's the message that people need to hear. You can become something amazing if God is working it through you. And that's the message we need to give. Right <clears throat>